Welcome to Horses for Future. Horse people can make a difference in the climate change crisis. Together, we're learning how. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step -step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. When I'm not writing about clicker training, my focus is very much on what we can do to make a positive change for the environment. Last week, I began a conversation with a good friend of mine, Suzanne Koenig. Suzanne is a horse person and a professional dog trainer, but that's not why I contacted her. Suzanne is also a gardener and a professional chef. I always grow a few tomatoes and other veggies at the barn, but the concerns that have grown up around the coronavirus have made me think that this year it might be a good idea to expand my efforts. So I've been using this time when I'm at home, when I can't travel and get to my usual clinics, I've been using the time to build a proper vegetable garden. One that will be fenced to keep out the critters and that's large enough so that I can produce an abundance to share. One of the huge advantages of having horses is I have a supply of well-composted manure ready to be turned into gorgeous garden soil. So here's yet another way that horse people can make a difference. We can grow food locally to help reduce the impact of industrial agriculture. And we can grow enough to share. And that's what made me think of Suzanne. I've known all along that I wanted to do some podcasts on growing your own vegetables. But the coronavirus really brought into focus this idea of sharing. So I wanted to talk to somebody who was, yes, a really good gardener, but who had a vision beyond that. I've been in Suzanne's garden in Washington State. I know what a great gardener she is. I've seen it, and I know the very great abundance that she produces. This doesn't just happen. Suzanne is very experienced gardener. She has a lifetime of growing experience that she brings to her current garden. She grew up on a small farm where she learned to grow food for the entire family. She's been an organic vegetable garden since 1986. She went through the Master Gardener program in Loudoun County, Virginia. And one of the reasons that I value her input is she's familiar with many different climates. So she's lived in, I think, six different states, and she's had vegetable gardens in all of them. So as an adult, she's lived in California, Montana, Virginia, Vermont, and now Washington State, where she currently has about 7,000 square feet in food and garden production. When I started planning out my veggie garden, I knew I wanted to contact Suzanne for advice. Suzanne has always been about sharing. At the end of last week's podcast, she told us how she learned to coexist with the resident woodchuck. She read that woodchucks love alfalfa and that they won't go further from their den than they have to to get food. So she planted alfalfa for the woodchuck and for the five years that they were neighbors, the woodchuck left her veggies alone. Gardening can teach us how to live with the natural world instead of fighting against it. And that's definitely a lesson that we need to take to heart if we're to have any impact at all in the climate change crisis. Last year, Suzanne set up a Feed Thy Neighbor farm stand. People were welcome to whatever vegetables and bouquets that she picked from her garden that day. And the farm stand was run on an honor system process. So there were no prices. People left what they could afford. And Suzanne encouraged people to take what they needed, even if they couldn't afford to pay anything. She told me she has a dream of starting a program where neighbors collect their excess produce from their gardens and offer it collectively to everyone in the neighborhood with all the proceeds that are collected from the farm stand going to a different nonprofit every week. 
her Feed Thy Neighbor farm stand was one of the inspirations that I was thinking of as I was building my veggie garden. Who knows what this summer is going to bring? With the coronavirus impacting all of our lives, we're certainly going to have people who are experiencing really difficult economic times. Certainly in my area, the number of people using the local food banks has jumped enormously. So this year especially, growing more than enough food to share seems like a good idea. So when we rejoin the conversation, Suzanne is talking about her Feed Thy Neighbor farm stand and the impact that the coronavirus is having on people. So that's another thing about living with, you know, with nature and having your garden, and especially in the places where I live, where I think a lot of horse, horse owners live as well, um, is out in rural areas where we do have to concern ourselves with wildlife in coming into our garden areas. So I think there's a lot of ways that we can explore that are non-harmful, that keep the ecosystem uh, balanced, and keep our vegetables safe. So there's a lot of protection, shall we say, that I use. That I've learned over the years, some is healthier than others. Which does bring, you know, right us back around to what's going on in our world right now. Prior to coronavirus, the main important topic was climate change. And it still is very important. Yes. It's not, it's not yes. going away. However, I would say that we're probably seeing a little bit of a respite from the, you know, the relaxation of all of the air travel and automobile use and factory production, um, which I think is a wonderful thing for us all to experience. But that goes back to one of the reasons why I produce food is to keep it local. And it's such a wonderful experience to not only grow your own food, but to also eat someone else's food that's been grown local, whether that's a, um, an organic farmer who's selling at the farmer's market or selling at your local co-op. But to know where that food comes from and to know that you, it, it came from five miles from where you live, that's a wonderful thing and really is impactful, maybe in a small way. Maybe it's a drop in the bucket, but many drops in the bucket make a full bucket. That's right. So, you know, on this podcast and what you emphasize is if, you know, these, all of us horse people manage our pastures better to absorb that carbon and take care of the land that we're on, we can make an incredible impact. And I feel the same way about growing produce. I think that if you could reduce the amount of produce that you buy in major supermarkets by, you know, even 25%, that's 25% less commercial agriculture that's happening if that's where you buy your food. That's right. But the other, and then the other side of that is being able to share what you have with others. And in this time of great need, which I can only imagine is going to get greater before it gets, it's going to get worse before it gets better, is being able to, to share what you produce with others. And that is what the Feed Thy Neighbor Farm Stand is all about. Um, it really is about, you know, you may not be able to go to the co-op right now and buy organic cabbage, but I've got six heads right here. Please take one or, or whatever is out there. It's usually at least a dozen choices at any one time along, along with the flowers. That farm stand really inspired me. You know, I, I was thinking about that as I was visualizing what the, this area would look like with a vegetable garden growing next to the barn because you know who knows what the summer is going to bring we have local farmers markets that i have always used but the farmers markets may not be allowed to open yeah that's right our farmers market was allowed to open just last week but it's by order only so you order your produce in advance or your whatever product you want from our right, right. in advance, and they have it ready for you, and you pick it up, and they only allow so many people in the rows to go get their their stuff. Um, so it's very limited, not anything like the community social event that we're um, accustomed to. And you know, I, I I was 
just reflecting, Alex, how how mirrored our environments are in such in although you've New York has way, way surpassed our COVID cases, but you know, we started here in Seattle with the initial epicenter. Um, New York quickly took that took that role over, yes. That title, unfortunately. Yes. Um, but it it hit us very early on the significance of what we're dealing with. And, you know, it was a really scary time when it, we were first learning all about it and we were having, you know, death after death. And, and it was like really, wow, made you sit back and go, wow, what is really going on here? Yeah, and we didn't know at that point, as Cuomo keeps saying, we didn't know if we could flatten the curve. You know, that we could have done all this putting our lives on pause and the, I hate calling it social separation because it's not, we're talking, it's physical separation. So we could have done all of this, shut all of our businesses down, et cetera, et cetera, and it might not have made any difference at all. But thankfully it has, but it's also given us, it's given us such an opportunity, and it's almost becoming a cliche to say this, but it is an opportunity. This, the coronavirus, it upset all of our normal patterns. Everybody's life has been impacted to one degree or another by what has occurred over the last couple months. And our normal habits have been completely upended, which means it's an opportunity to insert new habits hopefully better habits, other habits. It's an opportunity, and again, this is a cliche, it's an opportunity for people to reflect about the lives that they were living. When you're going full tilt and there's no break, no change in your pattern from one year to the next, yes, you may take the your summer vacation two weeks or whatever that gets you to step outside of your normal life, but then you're right back on full tilt again. You don't have time to reflect. Wow, my children are at home and I'm discovering I actually like them, you know, hopefully, or not, as the case may be. But hopefully, hopefully you're discovering that having time to do projects, having time to make meals, to sit at the dinner table and have conversations and all of this is, wow, this is, this is something that, that we like. How can we incorporate this? How can we take a deep breath? The planet is taking a deep breath. It's having a break from us. Indeed. What is the effect that that has? And and do we want to go right back to what we had? Or do we want to use this as an opportunity to create something other, better? And I really think that the coronavirus, it's a wake-up call. It's just it's a wake-up call in terms of what's, what's coming at us. If we thought this was a disruption, I mean, the, the, what the climate change activists are saying could happen in not very long from now, this is, this is a minor dress rehearsal. Exactly. Yes, I, I couldn't agree more with, with everything that you said. And one of the positive things that I recognized early on was I unfortunately, as a naive first home, first time home buyer, bought my house on a relatively busy road. And um, it is one thing that I really dislike is hearing traffic. <laughs> I kind of have to live with it now. But what I immediately recognized was that there was no road noise. And there was no air noise. There was no planes and there was no traffic and my my could I take a big deep breath and a big deep exhale and wow it just felt so good and I made me sit back and I remember it happening sit back in the garden and I went wow how quickly so many people's behavior changed in a day yes for the better yes for the better for me for the better for the planet for the better for everyone now, of course, you know, there are the commerce and, and, you know, people making a living and all of that. We have to figure out how that's going to work. But still, the fact that everyone's behavior could change that quickly 
that gave me hope. Yes. I mean, it was astounding going to the grocery store. And from one trip to the next, each time it was so dramatically different. So I went to the uh, Clicker Expo in March and you know, flew in only to discover that it was canceled. Uh, you know, oh dear. So that was that was kind of the point, the time frame for me of when all of this came to a head. Because we were hearing news stories about Washington State. We were hearing about the nursing home, the outbreaks there. But it didn't feel that different from what we've had in the past, like the, the SARS epidemic. You know, it didn't feel that different. Yes, there are outbreaks here. During the SARS epidemic, there were outbreaks in Toronto. That's not very far away, but it didn't shut things down. You could still fly into Toronto and fly out. It was a commuting hub. It didn't shut things down. So this didn't feel different from what had occurred before. But that weekend was that the Clicker Expo was held on was the weekend that there was sort of this rolling shutdown of, I'm pausing for a moment because there's a squirrel outside that's eating just outside the door and I can't tell what he's eating, but <laughs> I just have to. That's so funny. I've got a squirrel right outside my door too. He's drinking yeah. out of the bird bath. <laughs> anyway, that was the weekend where the the shutdown started to roll across the country. And we all raced back to to our homes because we weren't sure if we were going to be able to get back. That was one of the reasons that the Clicker Expo, why they decided to cancel it, because there really, it was a real worry of whether the flights were all going to be canceled. Thankfully, I was able to get home. So I went grocery shopping and the shelves were empty. We have all seen that. And the next time I went grocery shopping, we were a culture of mask wearers. It was just absolutely dramatic how almost overnight we became a community of people who wear masks. It's, it, it's really phenomenal. And, and who stayed apart from one another, who kept their distance. The, the difference when you are walking into a store and there's somebody else coming across your path, how there's each person pauses. Yeah. It's just, it's just extraordinary. Which means another thing, too, that I think is really a, a good thing is that we we're becoming way more aware of our environment. Yes. Way more aware of the space around us. And I think a lot of people walk around in their head not really noticing where they are in space. And this is making people become way more aware of who they're confronting, who they're near, what they're doing, what their what, what's their behavior, because there's also social acceptance here too, right? Yeah. But you know, this brings up another really important reason for gardening. When you garden, you get your hands dirty. And in this era of hand washing, we may all become so neurotic about Surfaces have to be clean. Hands have to be clean. Oh, I just touched something. I better get a disinfectant wipe. I, I, the, the, how neurotic we may all become about we have to be clean, clean, clean. And then we're going to go out in the garden and we're going to put our hands down in the soil, down into my mounds of compost. And I'm going to get dirt underneath my fingernails and I'm going to get going to have dirt in my hands. And somehow I think that's a really important thing in this age of, but you've got to, you've got to keep disinfecting everything. Well, as you always say, you know, you must train an opposite behavior. Yes. <laughs> keep everything in balance. That's right. That's right. So, so I'm going to keep tweaking my immune system by cleaning up after my horses and, and being a gardener. So, what should I grow? Well, I think your, your list that you sent me is wonderful. So, what I always tell people to grow is what they eat. For people who are just starting vegetable gardening, one of the things that can really uh, overwhelm you is the rainbow 
of heirloom seeds and yes. beautiful seed packages and yes. catalogs that are filled with all this incredible looking food. Um, but we only have so much space. And so what I have learned is to grow what you eat. So, you know, and maybe experiment with one or two vegetables that you're not really familiar with, but grow what you, what you eat grow heirlooms as much as possible because those are the vegetables that you're not going to see so much in, in grocery stores. You will see them in farmer's markets and, and smaller food stores that are supplied by small farmers. But for agribusiness, it's not affordable for them. They grow things that they can mass produce. So those, those heirloom varieties are keeping our seed stock viable and keeping agribusiness out of our food chain. And many of those heirlooms are disappearing. So I'm always trying to support the heirloom varieties. They come with history and culture, and many of them have beautiful stories that you can share at the dinner table when you're, when you're consuming them. Uh, grow what you like, but also grow the right amount. So, you know, tomato plants in the right place can produce tons, tons of tomatoes yes right and if you're not prepared to can and freeze and and preserve those tomatoes or you're going to have a lot of waste so there are two different types of tomato plants that are indeterminate and there are determinate and determinate produces like they're paste tomatoes the kind that you, that you make sauce with or sun-dried tomatoes they all ripen at the same time so you got to be prepared to produce and, um, and do something with those or give them away. Uh, the indeterminate, they produce over the season. So they start ripening and then you'll have another ripen and then you'll have a flood of ripening and then the ripening will slow down, but they'll produce for several weeks. So you want to think about the varieties that you're planting and how they mature. The other thing is what grows well with other things or what's going to follow something. So if you want to expand your growing season as long as possible, you might start with a, a moderate feeder, like lettuce, for instance, and plant that where you're going to plant your tomatoes. Because you can plant your lettuce probably eight weeks before you plant your tomatoes. So your lettuce will be harvested by the time you're putting your okay. tomato starts in. Okay. And the tomatoes are slow feeders, or they're moderate feeders, I should say. Um, they're not going to take up a bunch of nutrients. Where the tomatoes are very heavy feeders. So you're kind of balancing, getting the most out of, your, out of that spot as you possibly can. Other things to think about are lettuce and other uh, greens don't need as much sun and actually benefit from a little afternoon shade. So they can get their start earlier in the year, but then as you, you plant another plant nearby that's going, whose leaves are going to shade that plant, later on, then you're going to have nice, happy lettuce. Your ground is going to be covered, which is going to keep the weeds down, and you're going to have to water less, which is probably not an issue where you live. But that helps um, retain the moisture in the ground as well. So I always like to plant flowers, even though, as I said earlier, I, I mostly focus on food or have in the past. I always plant flowers as pollinators. I want to make sure I've got plenty of pollinators in my garden and there are many flowers that you can grow that help the soil and, and help uh, feed things that are helpful for your produce. So certain flowers are definitely going to plant. There are plants that I'm going to let go to flower as well. So right now I've got a bunch of bok choy that was a winter crop. And what I didn't use is all going to flower. You know, I could pull that out and get something else started in that plot, but I'm going to let that go because not only does it smell delightful and is it beautiful, but the bees are going crazy on it right now. Oh. So I want to make sure that they have what they need so because they're going to keep my, my ecosystem, the ecosystem of my garden well balanced. So that little plot's going to stay there until something else is blooming um, to ensure that the bees have what they need. So there's just there's so many different things that, um, that you start to learn about your particular garden plot. So beans, for instance, they're usually planted about now, um, the first crop. Succession planting is, is really great if you wanted to produce food throughout the season. So I planted my first beans 
uh, a couple of days ago, and I'll be planting another set of beans probably in another week, different type of bean. But then I'll go back and plant that same bean that I planted a couple of days ago. I'll probably plant that same bean in about two weeks. And so that bean crop is going to start to flourish. It's going to peak and it's going to drop down. And by the time it's dropping down, that new bean crop should be peaking. So I'll have a good supply of beans throughout the season. So succession planting is important. It's hard. Succession planting is probably the biggest challenge I have because I want to fill every growable oh, inch there yes. is. <laughs> yes. So saving space to plant something in a couple of weeks is a little challenging for me. I, I can feel the stress of that already. Yes. 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 Stress is a good word yes. for it. Yes. Yes. What do you mean I have to plant this, these things 12 inches apart? That's a huge, vast space. I must plant things in between and closer. And, and I do, and with great success. So um, one of the books that I started was my Bible for many, many years is a book called How to Grow More Vegetables Than You Ever Thought Possible on Less Land Than You Can Imagine. Oh, oh. And it's a book written by John Javons, and he had a experimental garden in a town called Willits, California, which is in the northern part of the state. And it was a, just a, an amazing thing. He grew all the food there. He grew wheat, he grew oats, he grew everything on very small spot, plot of land. But so I, and he did, he did something called <clears throat> French intensive gardening, gardening, which is a double digging uh, process, which we've, we've learned since is not, is not necessary. Um, in fact, no-till is a really ideal way to garden. But everyone's going to have their own approach to their own property. Yeah, I, I started out double digging all of the borders and then moved to the, the no dig process. Yes, yes, it's funny how that happens as we yes. get older. Yes. <laughs> which, is, which is where I'm at now as well. Um, I cultivate and I do, go, do a lot of cover crops, as I said, and make sure that my soil is, is lively at all times. But I also give it a break. You know, I think um, we, we also have to give our soil a little bit of a break. So anyway, so that book really got me learning about how to plant things so that you are growing amazing amounts of produce in very small pieces of land. So when you look, pick up that seed package and it says, you know, rows of beets, four to six inches apart, 12 rows, 12 inches or more apart. I'm like, not. <laughs> I'm not, that's not how I'm going to grow my beets. I usually grow in blocks and I often will plant when I'm planting starts, I'll plant in a triangle pattern. Um, and when you do that, you get about, I think it's about 30% more plants in that same space. Oh, so describe the triangle pattern a little bit. Help us visualize. If it. you think of um, the traditional gardening as rows, Right. Yes. So you've got a row and row, row after row after row. So you have five rows of carrots. Well, carrots probably isn't a good one to use. So I'll use uh, tomatoes. So those tomatoes have to be a certain distance apart. Not only do the rows have to be a certain distance apart, but the tomato plants in each row have to be a certain distance enough. Yes. If you instead use a plot, so raised beds are ideal for this because that's really a plot, a raised bed. And you put each tomato plant, so if you're working across the narrow end, so you're working side to side, not end to end, and let's say you put in three tomato plants in a 48-inch wide bed. Your next plant that you're going to put in, in your next row, is going to be between the two that you just planted in the row before. So you create a triangle. And they are equal distance apart in that triangle. Does that make sense? I think I'm going to have to draw it. Yes. So um, I don't know if I have a better way to explain it. I will say this, that when you look, when you've planted this way and you look at your garden from diagonally, Everything looks like it's been planted diagonally in a straight line across your bed, which looks pretty cool. 
But what you're doing is you're taking up all that available space so that each plant is exactly the same distance from the other. So it's very symmetrical. And there's a certain distance for each plant in this type of gardening. And what happens is that the leaves create a canopy which protects your soil. Yes. And that can canopy keeps the, the weeds down. It keeps the sun from roasting your soil and killing the nutrients and the little bugs that live on the top. Um, it keeps moisture in. You know, it's, it's kind of a living mulch in a way. So it, it's, a, it's a canopy that protects your soil base, which is really nice. It reduces your amount of work that you have to do. It reduces the water that you use, and it preserves your nutrient base. Um, as well as, you know, a list of things that I would plant with other things and when. Of course, each region is going to have different rules to follow, so to speak, um, dependent on, you know, when your rainfall is and when your frost dates right. are. So I definitely want to plant tomatoes. So what should I either not plant near the tomatoes or plant near the tomatoes? What do tomatoes like to have? Who do they want as a neighbor? Oh, tomatoes love carrots. <laughs> oh, okay, good. I say that because there's a book called Tomatoes Love Carrots, <laughs> which is a book on what grows well together. So one of the things about tomatoes, eggplant, peppers, potatoes, is that they're all in the same family. And they carry the same diseases and they have the same pests. So one of the things that we want to do is if we plant tomatoes in one plot one year, you don't want to plant something from the same family in that plot the following year. That makes sense. Right. You can plant tomatoes there, however, unless you have a disease problem, in which, place, in which case you want to plant your tomatoes somewhere else. Let's see. What else would grow well? Well, they do like to be watered well and from below. So you don't want to water your tomatoes from above because that typically will create um, blossom rot. Um, you might have beautiful tomatoes, but then right where the blossom was will start to rot. They don't really want to be growing next to fennel. Oh, interesting. Or kohlrabi. Okay. I don't know if kohlrabi was on your list of... Uh, it wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> Not one of those things people typically plant. I planted it, though. I, I do like kohlrabi. You'll want to uh, provide a trellis for your tomatoes. Tomatoes do a lot better when they're growing yes. up off the ground. So there are quite a few plants that actually need to be trellis. So the tomatoes, definitely. Cucumbers should go up. Beans should go up. Peas should go up. Yep. Anything that you can grow vertically is going to save you space. Yes. Um, I try to grow vertically as much as possible. The downside to vertical is that you do create shade. Yes. In those areas, I'm going to grow things that, that typically need some afternoon shade. So I'm thinking about that when I'm plotting out my garden. So right now, I've got tomatoes that will be coming up and shading my strawberries in the later part of the year, which will be fine because the strawberries will already be harvested. So I'm not worried about that. So tell me about growing strawberries, because I was considering adding strawberries to this garden. Well, strawberries are a perennial. Yes. Tomatoes are a perennial, too, but they're just not a perennial here. Strawberries are a perennial, and they send out a runner. Yes. Multiple runners. And in commercial strawberry production, one of the ways that they and even in organic commercial strawberry production, they, they train the runner to go out into a new bed and then at the end of the year when that mother plant has been harvested they cut the runner they pull up the old strawberry plant and that new strawberry plant becomes next year's production it's, it's a really clever way but you need a lot of space to do that so that is not the way i typically grow my strawberries but i do save the runners and plant them either in a new bed or give them away so the strawberries, one of the plants that I think do well with mulching um, are strawberries. It keeps the fruit off of the soil, which tends to keep it from rotting and the little bugs from eating it. So sow bugs and pincher bugs like yes. to eat. Okay. So I, I typically grow in, in a straw mulch. 
They're a pretty easy plant. Uh, they like a slightly acidic soil. So most garden plants, most of our produce likes to grow in a neutral to slightly acidic soil. The fact that you're using compost probably means you have pretty neutral soil in terms of pH. Um, but there's some research they're doing right now that kind of suggests that pH isn't as important as we originally thought, but maybe it has more to do with trace mineral um, absorption and uh, availability. But I don't really know enough about that to speak to it. It's just some stuff I've been reading. So they do like to be slightly acidic. And we've, there's many varieties. There's a everbearing, which will produce strawberries throughout the season. That's the type that I typically grow so that I can go out and pick strawberries for my morning yogurt every day. And then there are times, uh, strawberries that are going to be early strawberries that throw out a bunch of food, fruit early on. They tend to not be the sweetest. And then there are late strawberries, and those tend to be really sweet and really delicious. But again, they come on all at once, and you got to be prepared to, to deal with all of that. Yes. Yes. So the Everbearing do a slower production over a longer period of time. So you kind of have a consistent harvest. That sounds more, for, for, at least for my purposes, that sounds more desirable. Exactly. Yeah. That's, that, that's what I would be looking for as well. And, you know, strawberries are incredibly durable. So I've got a bucket of starts that's been sitting out, out in the yard for probably two weeks. And, and I, I know for a fact that all I have to do is just stick them in soil and they'll start growing. So a lot of times in raised beds, I will plant strawberries around the base of the bed, kind of just slightly up on the hill, yep. on the um, slope. Yes. Because they're just incredibly durable that way. And they hold the slope up and they also produce strawberries. I, I like to grow strawberries like if I've got a like a, a wooden bed frame, a, a built frame for you. Right, right, right. Yeah. I, I don't know why I can't think of what I'm trying to say. Then I grow them right on the edge so that the strawberries spill over the edge of the bed, the wood, and don't touch the soil at all. And those tend to be your best strawberries, the ones that never touch the soil. So there are numerous ways that you can grow strawberries because they're so durable. You've probably seen a strawberry planter that has one large pot with multiple holes up yes. and down. Yep. They make those out of a durable fabric now, which is easy to move and not heavy, not the heavy clay pots that you see. And you can probably get two dozen strawberry plants in one of those. That's a great way to expand your garden as well. Yes, definitely. Using containers. And then what do you do with them at the end of the season? How do you, how do you winter them? Um, I clean them up. So usually by then they're starting their runners. There'll be some runners at that point. Depending on what my chore list is like, I may not take the runners off. But if I do, then I know that's going to be my spring you know, I'll be giving those away or replanting them. I typically cover them in straw. Okay. I don't, you know, I don't have the same type of winter that you do. I think for you, you would definitely want to mulch heavily with straw. That's doable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just because you're going to get a hard, hard freeze, anything that gets a hard, hard freeze, I think should be protected either with leaves or with straw. You know, you have all of those wonderful deciduous trees there that you can create leaf mold with. Leaf right. mold is a phenomenal ad addition to any garden. And we talk about the, uh, you know, the fungi. Leaf mold is filled with good fungi. I'm always appalled every fall when I drive around town and I see that everyone has raked their leaves to the front of their property, and then the town is going to come and haul it away. It's like, no. <laughs> Organic matter does not leave my property. That's right. It's so true. I know I had a, a client of mine called me the other day and asked me if uh, what I was doing with my horse manure. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> no. <laughs> you can't have it. <laughs> right. But it's true. You know, the, the closer those organic materials to where they came from, the better it is for the planet because yes. it takes energy to haul them away. Hopefully, you know, your municipality takes it to a composting 
station where they make mulch and then well, distribute it. Well, they do, but the problem with the problem with that, I would not want to get mulch from the town composting I agree. facility because we have people who put who knows what on their lawns to get their perfect carpet of green. And all of that is going out to the curb. So you can really be poisoning your vegetable garden by using community mulch. Most definitely. I did that one year and I'll never do it again. <laughs> I'm just yeah. saying I hope I hope that it is at least composted and not, you know, just It is composted. Yes, there is a it very definitely is composted. Right. But it would be so much it's just we we want we want that soil to be sequestering carbon. We need to feed it with all of our lovely organic. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. And that's the that's the natural way that it's always, you know, that the that the earth works. Yes. I, I mean, I couldn't imagine, you know, it was one of the Chris was uh, out cutting the grass the other day and, and he went out and started raking it up. And I'm like, what are you, what doing? Are you doing? Stop that. <laughs> and, it, and he's just got it in his mind, you know, the suburban way that you do yard work. Yeah. And it's like, no, 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 we leave that there because that's going to feed the ground and yeah. sequester the carbon and, and really going to actually help the soil. And the same with the leaves that fall from, we have this gigantic pear tree. It's like, just leave it there. It's going to be really yeah. nice for the soil. Well, and You can run your lawnmower over it and it chops up the leaves. They disappear into the grass in no time at all. It's yeah. a, it's, we just have to change a little bit of how we perceive what is beautiful to our eye. Well, you know, it's the whole thing similar to like lawns, you know, for forever, the the pillar of having the perfect home meant that you had this beautiful manicured lawn. And in some areas of our country, that actually is not necessarily a really bad thing if it's native and it's herbaceous and it, it is uh, diverse. But yet take places like California, well, people should really not be having lawns in California. <laughs> right? These are just not, it's not the right plant for that environment. And people are starting to wake up to that and go, oh, wow, this costs me a lot of money. And that not only costs money, but it's also polluting and, you know, there's runoff and, and all of that. So tearing up that lawn and creating a zero scape that doesn't take water makes a lot more sense and supplies the native plant, the native fauna, what they need. Yes. Definitely, definitely. So I think I think there is help. I mean, I think there is change happening in the way we perceive what a garden should look like and and what it should be. But there are still people, obviously, that are going out and buying Roundup and commercial fertilizers. And of course, we've got agribusiness that you know they're trying to feed the world, so they say. But I think we could do a better job. Yes, and you know who knows as. I, there will always be something like the coronavirus. There will always be good things that come out of horrific experiences. I'm sure I'm not the only person who has thought, oh, it would be a good idea this year to put in a vegetable garden. So if it pushes more of us to take, even if it's just a small little piece of our, our suburban lawn, and to turn it into a vegetable patch. And we start to discover that actually it wasn't that hard to grow some tomatoes and cucumbers. And, and it was really nice to be able to go out and pick our own lettuce. And it tastes so different from the lettuce that you get in the grocery store. If more of us are doing that on our small individual basis, then that's a push for change. Yes. And I, I would say that, you know, my experience is, it's very similar that our community, you can't find seeds. You have to ask when the seeds will be delivered. And we sell almost all local seed here. You won't find burpees or, you know, many of the more large seed companies. It's mostly local seed, which is, which is another thing I really recommend, but uh, because those seeds are growing from plants that have been grown in your environment, which yes. they have, they've got the DNA for that. Yes, they will do well in your area. 
Yeah. yeah. So um, at any rate, you can hardly find seeds now. And the starts, you have to find out when they're being delivered if you want to buy starts because they will go it really super fast. This is very different behavior in consumerism than we've seen here in the past. So I know for a fact that many, many people are starting their own gardens. What I think of when I think of new gardeners or people who are getting back into gardening or gardening in a new environment is I want to make sure, just like when I'm teaching somebody about training their dog, is I want you to be successful. I don't want somebody to take on something massive or unmanageable um, and fail because I want them to be able to pick that head of lettuce and taste the difference. I want them to be able to go out and get that beautiful tomato and have a, you know, a slice of tomato toast and go, oh my God, how did I ever not do this before? And also not to be so overwhelmed by the abundance. It's like the old joke that in every neighborhood, there should be one person who's assigned to plant the one zucchini. That's right. And that's it. And no one else, nobody else within this square block is allowed to plant a zucchini. There will be plenty. You know, so I'm starting in an area, I'm growing it on stone dust. I've got all this horse manure so I can transform that area because I've got all this composted manure. But what would you say, suppose as an individual, I don't have my horses at home. Maybe I don't even have horses but that would be that would just be too distressing. So, but I board my horses somewhere else, and I have a suburban house. There's front lawn. It gets a certain amount. It gets it gets sunlight, so it's a reasonable area in which to grow some vegetables. How would you recommend to that person that they get started? So we talked about the no dig. So let's. What does what does that mean? Well, basically what no dig is, is that you're creating a, um, an ecosystem in your soil that maintains a certain friability. I think that for most new gardeners in the setting that you just described, that could be kind of difficult because it would take some time. But the first thing I would do is make sure that you don't have an HOA that prohibits you from having any gardens that, that actually does exist. <laughs> I know. Yes. Ridiculous, but it does happen. And the if you got have a suburban home and that lawn is the area in which you have to garden, then you're going to want to make a couple of decisions. Are you going to plant directly into your soil or are you going to have a raised bed? Most people, because it's tidy and it it looks good and certainly if you're in a neighborhood, most people are a little bit socially conscious of that, the aesthetic of their front yard. You would cut out wherever the beds are going to be of the, of the sod and you can just turn that sod over. So you can do it by hand or you can actually rent a machine. I do it by hand. It's not particularly easy, but if you're going to put in a couple of raised beds that are say four by eight, four feet by eight, that's an afternoon project with a, with a flat shovel. Yes. And you're going to take those pieces of sod and you turn them over. And so what will happen is that lovely topsoil that's been there forever as the grass gets cut and composts and back into the soil is still there. You're not removing it. And by turning it over, you're essentially killing the grass, which will also compost. Now, I generally do a, I just, I'll cover it with, oh, say, the paper from a grain bag or a shavings bag. So instead of digging it up and flipping it over, I just cover it. Yep. And that's, that's another, another way to go. It's going to take a little bit longer, but it works just fine. So you can just put the newspaper down or your grain bags down as long as they're biodegradable. Cardboard works too. Yes. And throw some soil on top of that. You can do that in September and by spring it's done. But if you're going to start a garden right now, today, that you can still do that, but you're going to build a box or a pile of, you're going to add your soil that you're going to grow into on top of that. So, um, and I've done that plenty of times, put down the cardboard. If you've got an herbaceous lawn that has dandelions and sorrel and other mm, sometimes tenacious 
type uh, plants in them, they will come right through and come up in your bed. So it is something to consider looking at the, the makeup of that sod. So those are those two ways to, to get that, that ground ready for your box. So let's assume we're going to build a box around it. You build your four by eight or whatever size box you want. And there's numerous ways, materials you can use. I almost always use uh, reused lumber that I've acquired from one place or another. Chris, my partner, just built me what? six brand new gorgeous boxes out of all reclaimed rough sawn cedar. Oh, gorgeous. Yeah, which a woman gave me. So it's just beautiful. I'm so grateful for him doing that. So anyway, so you build those boxes, which is a pretty easy thing to do. I don't put any bottom in my box because I want that soil below, beneath. I'm just trying to contain it and keep things neat and tidy. It also makes it easier because if you've got a raised bed, you're not having to bend over as far. Yes, indeed. So I'm always, always looking for ways to make my gardening a little bit easier on my body because I'm typically the only one working the land here and I have got a lot of garden space, which I keep adding to. <laughs> so yeah, the raised beds are, that's my raised bed garden. That's where I go to relax. <laughs> I go to garden there because it's easy. So then I'm going to look for resources for good compost or soil mix. And almost every area that I've lived in, those products are available in bulk. And if you can have them delivered or you have a truck, you can get them yourself or rent a trailer and get that. That's great. But you are going to need the soil to fill that box. And it takes more than you think. You can buy it in bags, but it'll be a lot of bags. But many people will do that. So I'm always looking for organic material. I don't want to use anything that's non-organic. And I want to look at what it is that I'm putting in there. So I don't want an overabundance of wood chips, for instance. So I'm looking for things that have manure in them, compost, soil, humus, often sand will be a component. Or I'm going to blend all those things together and make my own soil. And if I have a spot in my yard where I can harvest some native soil, I'll do that as well to get that filled. So now I've got a bed. And so I might put a layer of propagation mix, which would be a seed starter mix on the top of that. If I'm going to be starting seeds, because that will help those seeds germinate, stay moist throughout their germination period. And then once they've started their root system, they'll go down into that soil mix and start to pick up the nutrients. I'll also put my organic fertilizer in that soil mix before I plant so that it's starting to do its work and start to, you know, symbiotically move within the soil and become a whole unit. And then I'm going to plant and I'm going to enjoy. So, I mean, it's, it's totally doable for everyone. There's, you know, if you've got at least six hours of sunlight, you know, any spot is doable you get six hours of sunlight. I Eight is, is ideal. And of course, more than that, you get it, it's even better. And then if you don't have that type of a garden area, you can always use container planting. I've grown many, many gardens in pots on warm porches and protected areas of along, you know, against the house with south facing exposure. You can just grow beautiful tomatoes that way for sure. Yes, absolutely. We can have gardens of many sizes and many scales. And you know, I think of the houses I drive by, how easy it would be to have a beautiful raised bed running along the edge of your driveway. You still have the main part of your lawn, but you've got a raised bed of that's got the mix of the marigolds and the nasturtiums and the tomatoes and some lettuce, and you've got yourself a feast. Most it's definitely. Funny. I mean, I've, I've always incorporated food because I'm always looking for every every to grow food into my flower beds, into my landscape area. I mean, there's no reason why that part of, of your bed has to remain empty and be susceptible to weeds when it could be growing strawberries, for instance. That's right. And there are, there are really some great books out there that incorporate growing edibles amongst our ornamentals. So do you have a, uh, some titles for people? Well, a, a couple of books. Uh, there's a woman named Rosalind, Roseanne Creasy, 
Creasy, I believe is her name. And she wrote a whole series of books on that. John Givons uh, does go into that a little bit in How to Grow More Vegetables Than You Ever Thought Possible. Another book that it's a little dated, but I really like is Roses Love Garlic. That's the secret of companion planting with flowers. That book is very helpful and gives you all kinds of ideas about how to do that. These days, I think a lot of people are going to the internet to find that kind of information. And of course, it's loaded with yes. that kind of stuff. Yes. Um, another great resource is a lot of really good seed companies. Um, I'm thinking of two in particular, um, one on either side of the, the country. Johnny's Seeds in Maine. I think they're in Maine, maybe Massachusetts, but on your in your neck of the woods. Right. And Territorial, which is in Oregon, both produce beautiful seed catalogs that are really garden books in their own right. Information about what grows well together, different the heirloom varieties, uh, how to grow, whatever it is that you're looking at, whether it be celery or lettuce, onions, and then they have uh, incredible uh, resources of ornamentals as well. Those are dangerous catalogs. Though. I know. Oh, you start reading because and they do make great reading. But oh my goodness. Yeah, I'm I'm looking right now at my seed collection, which has been laid out on the largest dog crate that I have in the house, <gasps> um, and spread out over to the kitchen table, <laughs> and it's organized. And it's just you know it's it's a weakness. I'm I can't. I'm sorry. It's and it's an addiction. I see a variety and I'm like, oh God, I got to try it. Got to have that. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I totally get that. I try to stay away from the big displays of seeds because it's like, there's a limit. There's a limit to how much space you have. So That's right. And, and it can get you into trouble if you overplant because, you know, nothing's going to do well if it's not getting what it needs. So definitely I have to get tough with myself and sometimes I have to get tough with the plants that I've put in and say, I'm sorry, but I, you're, you're going to have to go. I try to plan things out so that I can harvest something before something else matures, therefore giving that larger plant what it needs for maturity and yet still being able to uh, harvest something from something a little less needy, so to speak. And, you know, speaking of harvesting, I think actually this is a good space to stop because we've been talking for a very long time which is delightful and clearly once we've got the plants in the ground and there are things that we can begin to harvest we can have another one of these lovely long conversations and we can talk about the harvesting the preserving the sharing the cooking but first we have to get it in the ground that's right well I hope I was able to offer some useful information and, and not just go on about how much I enjoy what I do, but I, I hope that other people will be able to find the joy and the rewards that I find to be so valuable. I think that's the most important part of it, that growing a garden, is it's not a chore. It's not, oh, I have to go out and, and do the garden. It is a joy. That's right. It that's is right. an absolute joy. And it is... When I think about if someone says, you know, were to say, so describe yourself. I mean, one of the ways that I would describe myself is I am a gardener. Not I garden, but I am a gardener. There is a difference. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, because you, you kind of live it. It's, yeah. it's, a part, it's a part of who you are. And I'm, I'm part of the garden. I, you know, as I say, I've always had grown flower gardens. And I'm, if anyone, I'm looking out over my, my garden right now and, Anyone coming here would, would sort of go, that's a garden. Well, I share it with a lot of deer and other critters. So, so it, it used to be a botanical garden. It's now become a zoological park. And, <laughs> and, and I'm a sentimental gardener. If I left this garden and somebody else took it over, they would definitely make a lot of changes. Because there are things that, like, I'm looking out right now over one of my very favorite trees. It's a, they're plum trees. They're an old variety. They're part of, they were part of an orchard that was planted hmm, probably well over 100 years ago. 
and they're a variety that you would never find. They're the most fragrant blossoms. They're my favorite, favorite. But they're very old. They're very broken. They've had limbs falling on them. They've had the snow break them. They're not pretty by any stretch of the imagination. They are very, very geriatric plum trees. And I wouldn't touch them for all the world. They have a prime space in the garden. I don't care how ancient and geriatric and decrepit they become, I would not take them out. I'm a sentimental gardener. And that's true throughout my garden. And they're plants that I have known literally for decades. And right now is that lovely time of the year when you go out and you see who's, who's made it through the winter. And you're sort of greeting them like old friends as you see them come through. And it's part of being connected to land that you have known well, that you have taken care of and been part of, that, that real deep connection to a place, which I think we, we are losing because we move around so much. We lose that, that long connection to a place. And I think there's value to that. Oh, there is so much value. And, and just knowing your, how your seasons move and, and how things change in that environment. But I also feel that if you can make that connection in one place, so you've, you've experienced that and you understand that you are a part of this system, that when you do move, you're able to take that, that knowledge and that understanding with you. Yes. And it makes it more available to you in that new environment. That, that is one thing that I learned from my childhood. I only grew up in this place. It was very, you know, was, I just, I call it vernacular. You know, it was just what I was a part of its vernacular and its locale. And I took, still take that place with me everywhere I go. And yet all the different places I've lived, I've been able to take that connection to that new environment and say, okay, this is the new place that I'm at. This is the new environment I get to become a part of. Yes. And it does open up your, your senses, I think, to enjoying it from that perspective. Right. So it is a mindset that is just with you, no matter where you are. I think so. I, I do. I mean, I, there is something to being on a piece of land for a long time that really is an amazing experience. But I also think that people can be on a piece of land for a long time and never make, never notice it. Yes, that's absolutely true. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I think it works both ways. Yeah. Yeah. But hopefully as we, as people get out into the garden and start growing things, that those old connections to land will be reawakened. And that's important. That's really important. It is the step of this whole climate change situation that we're in is, and the conservation of, of animals for that matter, is we need to make a connection. We need to care enough to change. Yes. And the coronavirus, we cared enough about ourselves and each other and our loved ones to change. And if we can take that behavior change to recognizing that what we can do, the drop in the bucket that we can offer will help if we can all make that understanding and then move forward. I think that we can make a difference. Yeah, we've seen that our behavior can change radically, really fast. Exactly. Yeah. That's, my, that's my point. And just like me sitting back in my garden and going, wow, there's no air traffic. There's no road traffic. This is, this is a dream come true how delightful I think people going out into their garden and picking strawberries for their morning cereal and um, a tomato for their dinner salad will also help them make that realization that this too is something they can do successfully. Yes. Yeah. And then it fits into their life as they rebuild it, you know, as they rebuild their new, as not rebuild, but as they build new habits, as we shift from, being on pause to being back in the world, what does that look like? That's right, because we're going to have to build new habits. 
we, we I mean, clearly, we're, we are going to be um, guided into creating new habits. We've already started, just as we've discussed about going out into public and going shopping. Our, our physical awareness of where we are and what we do while we're in public is, is now changing the whole landscape of how we move. So our habits are already changing. The, the key is, can we change them in the direction that's going to help the planet? That's right. That's right. Well, we're just going to assume that we can, because we must. The alternative is, is too horrific to contemplate. So until proven otherwise, I am going to, we started out by talking about, you know, gardeners are, are optimistic visualizers, and we need that. If ever there was a time where we needed a lot of optimistic visualizers, it's now. So we must just keep visualizing the kind of world. We create our own realities. That's absolutely the case. So let's create a good reality. All right. I'm with you on that one, Alex. Yep. Very good. Well, we will, we will talk again. This has been wonderful. Many, many, many thanks. Oh, thank you, Alex. I really yep. appreciate it. I'm publishing this just as I'm finishing up the construction of my new vegetable garden. The fencing is up, the beds are prepared. My current project is cleaning out the goatery. I'm using their old bedding to mulch between the rows. I like the way all these projects tied together. I need to clean out the goatery, which means I need some place to put what is an astonishing amount of wasted hay. Their old bedding will keep the weeds down and the moisture in. So it's a win-win for me. The garden benefits and the goats benefit as well. Yesterday I planted the first of my many veggies, so now it's beginning to look like a garden. It's been a good project to share. So thank you for listening. Stay well, and remember, horse people can make a difference. Together, we're learning how. <laughs>